We want to start this episode by acknowledging the Gadigal and the Wongal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this very podcast. We also pay our deep respect to Elders past, present and future, always was, always will be. This podcast may contain discussions about violence, drug use, and it's most definitely going to contain a lot of foul language. Hello, everybody. Hey there. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to an episode of Sorry He Sucks. Bienvenue. Uh, we are very happy for you to be here with us because you're going to love it. We bloody love it. You know who else is going to love this episode? Who? Your mum. Yeah, your mum is going to love this. Everyone's mum. <laughs> the universal mum. This is a special, like, Christmas episode so that you can, like, get into a fight with your parents about their faves. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. You're right. It is. Yeah. I, I mean, actually, I think this comes out, like, on Boxing Day. But whatever. But, hey, Boxing Day, you're still probably spending time with those jabronis and yeah. pick a fight with them. If not, give them a call, get in a fight. Get in a fight. Um, that said, we're both nerds who love this music too. Definitely. Um, who are we doing? <laughs> well, you're going to start. But actually, before you start, can, can I just say one thing? I made a very wild mistake in the episode before last, the... Um, Tommy Lee and Axl Rose one. Oh yeah, what did you do? I <laughs> it was like it was about the I'm going to be frank. Okay, can I still be Garth's Wayne's World joke? That whole bit, and obviously it was Kim Basinger. It wasn't Heather Locklear, <laughs> and yeah, I'm embarrassed. I'm sorry, um, but you know, I know I know Wayne's World. They want you out there to know that I know yeah. fucking Wayne's World. <laughs> we, we actually even did the Wayne's World like. TV counting as we started this because for the very first time on the main feed, we're recording separately. We are. <gasps> um, so hopefully it still works for you guys. I think that the sound quality is going to be even better. Me too. We've done an episode or two, I can't remember, for the Patreons mm. um, this way and everyone said it was great, but they all are really, really nice people, so who knows? That's true. It could be dog's <laughs> breakfast. <laughs> mm. uh, but, you know, DJ Moggs working his magic. He really is a sack of magic, that one. He really is. He don't suck. We should do Le a sack sorry, of magic. Sorry, he doesn't suck. Yes. About so, Morgan. <laughs> sorry he doesn't suck. DJ Morgs edition. <laughs> uh, if anyone out there loves Sundamentals, you should go get some tickets to, uh, they're doing a really cool show in Brisbane. Fuck yeah. Week. And I reckon it's going to be sick ass. Well, they're one of the greatest bands of our time. Yeah. Thundermentals. If you don't know, know Thundermentals, you should because they're adorable. Okay. That's all you get, Morgan. <laughs> 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 I 
I'd be happy. He didn't ask for that at all. He, we do. He doesn't need it. No, I mean <laughs> he does do it okay. pro bono, so we could give him a little little shout yeah. out. <laughs> Once in this is like the fifth season, first time I've mentioned his band. <laughs> <laughs> so smokes. Ah, anyway, uh, back to family. This is I'm going to be doing my mum's fave, or well, one of her faves. So this is a shout out to you, Lily. Love you, Lily. Um, it was also her idea, though, when we were talking um, one time about, like, potential people to do, and she was like, what about... And I said, that's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, so without further adieu, I'm going to start my beautiful story. Please. So let's take a journey way back in time to August 1945. In Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it had been a pretty terrible 27 days since the United States detonated two atomic bombs Mm. over the cities. Uh, But over the seas in Belfast, Northern Ireland, there was better news. Violet Morrison had just pushed a very small screaming Irishman out of her (laughs) vagina. His name, you ask? Sir... George Ivan Morrison. You? Well, he didn't come out as a sir, um, <laughs> and I'll get to that, I guess. Uh, but you may know him more casually in sort of a friendship way as Van Morrison. Oh, I know it. Your mum's fave, mate. So people started calling him Van from when he was about five, um, and the George was your typical narcissistic patronym, uh, which I looked it up, that's the word for it, patronym. Really? Yeah. You, yeah there's also a, a matronym. Rarer. Re- very rare. It's quite rare. Uh, his parents, as I said, George and Violet, and little Van, I suppose, were your classic Irish working-class Protestants. Despite this... His dad, George, had one of the largest collections of records in Northern Ireland. Wow. Yeah, which he got, like, on a trip to Detroit. He just went mad for buying heaps of records. So Van grew up on a pretty solid diet of excellent American soul music, notably Solomon Burke, Ray Charles. But there was also a big, big, you know, bunch of blues and gospel and folk music, even a little bit of country, because you've always got to have... A little bit of country. Yeehaw, my country home. When Van was 11, his dad bought him a guitar. And by the wee age of 12, he'd started his very first band called The Sputniks, which is a great fucking band name. It's pretty good. They played around the place with Van on vocals and arrangements until he left that band. And then he was in a few others. Uh, He also learned the saxophone when he was like 14. Um, and then he played in bands also as a sax player. Cool. And interspersed between all this band stuff, when Van left school, he was expected to get a real job. Mm. So he started working as a window cleaner, which is pretty grim. But probably great for a musician. He, uh, you know, because he's really only just got to show up and clean a couple of windows. Mm. Can't take that long, right? Well, I, when I when I was working in a shop in Covent Garden in London, we had a window cleaner too, and he was such a lovely guy. Oh, so chipper! Nice. But that was that is nice. I mean, it makes me sound like I was cleaning chimneys as a child, but that really wasn't that <laughs> long ago. <laughs> uh, okay, he joined this 
band called the International Monarchs where he played saxophone, guitar and harmonica as well as backup. Like he was like the backup drum player and the backup bass player. I think like everyone was amazing in that band and could just swap seas. International Monarch is a sick name as well. Yeah, I like that too. And they toured like a fair bit. Um, I think like in Germany and shit, they played at a lot of... U.S. Army bases where they did shows like they did five shows a night, like hectic, hardcore, very Beatles band kind of style, right? Yeah, and sort of the same-ish time, I guess. Yeah. By 1963, that band had split up, and the following year, 18-year-old Van Morrison responded to an ad wanting musos for, like, a Belfast dance hall that was super popular with the Sailors. Sounds hot. Mm. He put together a band himself of old bandmates from various bands and that band was called Them. Ah, yes. Uh, And it was named after a 1950s horror movie that I had never heard of, but as I am committed to solid Research, I looked it up, and it has a fully sick poster. And the tagline is... Sorry about that. There was a giant motorbike coming by. A horror horde of crawl and crush giants clawing their way out of the earth from mile-deep catacombs. Yes, very, very scary. So that's uh, giant ants. No. Terrifying and obviously in some way related to the blues rock stylings of capital T, them. Interesting. I must also say that the band did go through a few other names, none of them good, Uh, but I don't really like them very much either. (laughs) Fair enough. But the other options were like the Belfast Gypsies, which is racist, and the Belfast Blues Band, which although very like alliterationary, is also very boring. So I guess we have them. All right, fair enough. Um, Best of a bad bunch. It is the best of a bad bunch. (laughs) They were super popular at the dance hall, which was the, I think it was just called the Maritime Dance Hall. They were fun the energy was like top shelf, super profesh. They were amazing. They did heaps of covers, lots of standards. Um, and then, you know, they would just sort of jam them out for ages. They did some originals as well. And in fact, the incredible song Gloria mm. that Van Morrison wrote was debuted around this time in that in that band. Bloody love um, that and song. Sometimes it would go for 20 minutes. That's too long. It is. Way too fucking long. Yeah, no. I get it though. Like the folks loved it, and you can you can go dun 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 dun, dun over and over. You really can. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they were super popular. So of course they got signed to Decca Records. They went to London and started recording. And did you know that none other than Jimmy Page? played guitar as a session musician on their cover of Please Don't Go, which is so bloody good. Wow. Um, They had three big chart hits with Baby Please Don't Go, Here Comes the Night and Mystic Eyes. And, of course, Gloria, like, became such a classic. It's like a standard now, really. Yeah. Um, It's been covered by our Lord and Saviour, Patti Smith. You 
The Doors, Jimi Hendrix. It's fucking cool, all right? It's cool. It's cool. So they toured the UK uh, in 1965 and they stayed at the Royal Hotel where Jimmy Savile also lived. <laughs> Perhaps foreshadowing for a future episode, maybe. Um, don't know, maybe. He's just... I don't, I don't know. I think he's too disgusting for us I to think do. he's too disgusting and also... As the as things go, I'll probably end up having to do him, and I just don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Red Handed did a great episode on him. They actually. did. They did. They did like a two parter, and it was fucking dark. Like, yeah, it, it's really horrible. I think I watched a documentary about him. I because I didn't know him. I don't think he was, like, on TV in Australia. No, I don't think he was... I, I don't either. Like, I don't think he was, like, a mainstay. I think he was so, like, absolutely um, super exposed, like, in, in British television, in the BBC, but I don't think it was really syndicated here. Or maybe it no. was before our time, but definitely yeah. I wasn't super aware of him. But um, I think I said in last the last episode, like, I did say that... Bill Cosby is the Jimmy Savile of comedy. Yeah. Just like that prolific abuser in plain sight that no one is stopping. Yeah. Just so foul. He's so foul. He really is. He's so... He's disgusting. Everything about him is repulsive. Yeah. Even had he not been a child abuser... He's just disgusting. Yeah, he makes my skin crawl. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, a bit of off topic. Anyway, uh, them. Back to them. They toured the States. They did a residency at the Whiskey A Go Go. Great. Where the doors supported them. Oh, oh actually, um, I think I mentioned that in the Jim yeah, Morrison. Yeah, I think episode. you did too. Yeah. Um, Jim Morrison was hugely influenced by Van Morrison, no relation. (laughs) Towards the end of the tour, the band uh, really got into it with their manager over money and when they returned home to Ireland, they were just like deflated by the fact that their manager had sort of, I don't want to say ripped them off, but like the deal wasn't what they thought it was Mm. and the band broke up. And they did actually get back together later with a different singer, but... Van was fucking done with them. He was done. He was done. He was so done. Um, Oh, and I also have to say, like, the other singer that they got was, like, not good at at all. I was listening to a Spotify playlist um, the other day when I was writing this of, like, them, the band, and every time a not Van Morrison song came on, I was like, oh, good Lord, what is that hideous man? Who is this horrible person? It It's just like maybe it wasn't that bad, but compared to Van Morrison's voice, it's just so bad. I think I'm like this, and Louise Elizabeth Clark will attest to this because when we worked together and Playlist came on, if there was a cover of something, I'd be like, turn it off. Like a cover of something yeah. that was made really, really famous by someone. I, I feel like I couldn't disengage my my brain and my ear canals to like readjust. Com- compare it. Yeah, yeah I yeah, couldn't no. do it. I'd be like, I can't so listen to this. 
stop. I, I think also the words were bad. Like Van Morrison is an incredible singer and an incredible poet. Like how could you ever like? And then can I ask like when they it's apples and oranges? And obviously I prefer apples. Oranges are foul. I mean, like, I like an orange every now and then, but I don't want to stink Ugh. like it for, like, you know, the no. next two hours. I'll take an apple any day. And God help you, if you fucking eat an orange or a mandarin on the train... No. fucking sick motherfucker. When my, my sister oh. worked in a magazine, she actually banned bananas in the office. She's quite a tyrant, bananas. my sister. <laughs> Bananas are amazing. I know. The smell? It was the smell of the peel afterwards. But um oh, but I was just gonna say when they reformed, was it was it quite soon after with this new singer, or was it like later down the line when they run out of money? No, it was quite soon. Okay, all right, okay. Painting yeah, a picture. And I yeah, I think it was fairly soon. It, I just feel bad for the guy, really. <laughs> oh dear. Could you imagine? No. I wouldn't Ooh. want to. I was sort of like in our choir when, like, some when bloody Lauren or someone amazing would do a s- solo, and then you're after them, and you're like, ah, oh, shit. Yeah. Well, I never <laughs> took on anyone else's. Like, I just had one solo, and then like, I never took on anyone else's. I always fancy doing Kaylee's. I always fancy doing You Ought to Know because I, you know, yeah. Alanis Morissette raised me. Um, yeah, pretty good, but. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It was just like I would never want to follow some of the people in our little community. <laughs> no. They're just too good. They're too good. You can't, Sorry. You can't um, a bit of perfection. You heard it here first. Lauren is the Van Morrison of the Bad Beach Choir. <laughs> Lauren is the Van Morrison of our time. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Loz. Love you. Uh, okay, back to the bloody story. Sorry. Uh, Van was all right, though. <laughs> Don't even worry about it. This guy called Bert Burns, uh, he was the producer of one of the Them songs, uh, Here Comes the Night, was like, Van, my man, get your sweet ass over to New York City, let's make some bloody music. <laughs> so he fucked off and together they made Van's first solo album called Blowing Your Mind. Wow. With an exclamation mark there too. I think you put if- that across pretty good. Well, yeah, it's like the phrase blowing your mind alludes to a fucking exclamation mark. Right? But like blowing your mind? <laughs> yeah, I guess it could be. Could be. Blowing your Question mind? Mark. Question mark. <laughs> Is there like, it's a shame there isn't like a punctuation mark that does like the opposite of an exclamation mark. Definitely. Like a sad face. Blowing your mind. <laughs> That's why emojis are so useful as punctuation. <laughs> I think sometimes emojis can be quite, um, uh, oh, God, I can't think of the word right now. Nah, scrap that. Scrap that. Scrap it. Chuck it in the bin. Okay, so on this album was a track called... Hostile. Rat- Sorry, emojis oh. can be hostile. <laughs> okay. Sorry, like those smiley faces sometimes, they're like, sorry for the bad news, smiley face. (laughs) It's like, no. Thanks for all your help with this smiley face when they haven't even said they would. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I do that on teams all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Ew. Thank you in advance. That's meant to be, I like that. That's, That's authority. 
Yeah, it is good. You've got something uh, to do for me, and you're going to do it. <laughs> and I thank you now. I'm probably not going to reply to your thing when you send it through. Yeah, that's how it is. Okay. Brown-eyed girl. Mm. The motherfucking Van Morrison song. Twas a huge hit, and it is super beloved. Then and now. Um in something that listed like the most downloaded songs between 2004 and 2015, it was the most downloaded song from the 60s. And it's always on those top 100 songs of all time lists. To quote Wikipedia, it's Van's signature song. It definitely is. And when you said most downloaded album of the 60s, it took me some mental arithmetic, like a bit of gymnastics there in my brain because Mm. I was like, but how did they download it in the 60s? (laughs) But then I got it. I got it. You get it. You get it. You get it. You get it. Head trauma. Go on. Uh, Okay, then a bunch of negative things happened, which I was going to tell you about later, but I don't think I actually ended up getting to it. But basically you just like had a fight with that guy, but birds and it was bad. Suffice to say, he changed labels. Okay. And then he released his second solo album, Astral Weeks, in 1967. And now listen, i got to tell you, Astral Weeks is a fucking great album. Like, every song is so beautiful and it's got such a cohesive energy. I listen to it often in its entirety. I think it must be such a hard thing to do to make an album that's like so perfect as one piece of art. Yeah. And I think it is widely considered to be pretty special. Like I don't think I'm saying anything like groundbreaking here. Um, But at the time when it came out, no one really cared for it that much. I think it was probably a bit ahead of its time. Mm. Like, I don't know if people were making, like, concept albums, really. Yeah, it was a grower, Um, not a shower. Yeah. Like, the hits in 1967 were, like, To Sir With Love and Everybody Loved the Monkeys and the Turtles. Like, excuse my pompous attitude here, but those artists are pretty lowbrow. Ooh. And Astro Weeks to me is fucking highbrow shit. It's classy. It's magical. It's vulnerable. It's beautiful. Okay. Okay, thank you for agreeing with me yeah. by saying okay. <laughs> Look, I, I want you to have your space and your opinion and I believe thank in it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're the best person ever, so. After that, as you do, you released your third album. Oh, yeah. That one's called Moon Dance. Mm. And this album was pretty different to Astro Weeks. Way more optimistic Vibes. He went back to his R&B sound roots. There's a lot of bangers on this album, obviously. Moon Dance. Classic. Rules. Yeah. Uh, you've got Into the Mystic, which is probably my personal favourite Van Morrison song. Stoned Me, which I don't understand what that means. If anyone knows, please explain. Um, mm. Anyway, got great reviews. He sold a lot of copies, which I guess was the plan. People were like, forget about that silly Astral Weeks. Now he's great. Um, and Van even later said that he made that album upbeat so that it would sell. Like, he needed to eat. I get it. But I think despite this sort of sad admission of, like, doing, making art to sell art, like, it's still very authentic and awesome. So who cares? And it made him very famous and probably rich. Mm-hmm. 
Probably rich, definitely. Absolutely rich. And now listen, I'm not going to go through every album that this man has made because I don't care. And I'm going (laughs) to assume that you don't either. And if I'm wrong and you want a complete history of Van Morrison's discography, you can make your own podcast or even easier, read the Wikipedia. Absolutely. You don't even Uh, need to buy a mic for that. (laughs) No. But, like, he made 17 more albums over the next 20 years. Jesus. Some were great, some were flops. Uh, He had quite a resurgence in the 90s. Like, I know in the 90s as a 13, 14-year-old, which is a bit weird, um, but I was obsessed with him. Yeah. And, I mean, every kid nowadays is obsessed with the 90s, so I think that's just a thing that happens. Definitely. So, yeah. In 1990, I think, he released a compilation album, and that's the album that I found. I think my (laughs) mum had it. Definitely it was my mum's. It's a really great compilation album, and Van compiled it himself, which is nice. Like, usually what happens is, you know, a label wants to make some money and they just put together what they think will sell. Mm. Um, But, you know, Van did it himself. That's nice. Yeah, I like Um, the fact that it's self-curated. That's nice. That is lovely. Yeah. I mean, if I was to be listening I mean, to it that. It still had all the hits. Yeah, but, like. but it makes a difference because it's like this, it's like a weird kind of insight or more of a connection to the artist to know yeah. that they love these, but they're putting this together for you. You know, there's something about that that's a bit more personal or something. For sure. It's nice. Uh, and I, you know, like people really loved it and went, sort of back to all those older albums, Astral Weeks, you know, was very much considered a a classic from then on. Right. And he, you know, he's selling out huge tours, generally carrying on like an icon. Uh, He made more albums, like all up from 1967 to 2022 he has released 43 albums. That's fucked. And he has one due out next year. He's 77. Relax, Van. Like, I don't think I realised just how much, like, he, like he's so fucking prolific. Yeah, I had no idea. That's bananas. And somehow he has managed to, for the most part, be such an enigma. Like, you know he's been around forever. You know he's incredible. But do you know anything about him as a person? Not really. No, I didn't. And perhaps that was for the best. Anyway, Cara, before I move on to the bad bit, tell me your thoughts on Van the Man, or as I like to call him, the original mumbler. Very good. He he was mumbling way before Eddie Vedder, before Bruce (laughs) Springsteen, before Tom York, before Tom Waits, and certainly before Drake was mumbling his way through running through the reins with my wool. Anyway, sorry, please continue. Cara. That was great. And I already feel like I've had a little bit of an insight into this enigma, as you called him. Um, I'm going to actually answer your question with another question, Amber. I would like you to tell me, like, can you name any events, weddings, parties you attended growing up with your parents that did not feature the song Brown Eyed Girl? No. 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 That's fucking nostalgia. It comes on, like, almost every 
Spotify playlist that Spotify makes for me. Yeah, like that was that was such a consistent song that was played at any kind of celebration party where people would end up being like dancing and gallivanting and have a great time. I remember one time it was a Kara's parents' house. There was like, I think Kara was having a party, but then like someone behind the back fence was having a party and they were just like playing Brown Eyed Girl over and everyone was so <laughs> drunk. Like, Brown Eyed Girl, like just like screaming. <laughs> I just distinctly remember that. <laughs> But that that is fucking nostalgia. Like that's that's what Van Morrison is to me. It's like that. It's it's childhood and growing up. And I I loved Mood Moon Dance. Like I really loved that oh, song in high school. Me too. I was obsessed. I was obsessed with this gorgeous man. Yeah, we were. Man, what? Odd he wasn't children. a man at the time. He was a boy like me. James Carvelis. Oh, I thought you were so talking about Van Morrison. I was like, no, he's definitely a man. <laughs> Sorry, go on, James. No, no. <laughs> Just this guy called James Carbolis and I just loved him. And one time we were like hanging out at my friend's place um, and we were getting drunk as teenagers and we danced to it and I was like, he's going to kiss me and he, he never did. Well, I bet he regrets that to this very day. Well, look, I don't know. He did have a psychotic episode and I don't think I ever saw him again. Okay. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Such is my childhood <laughs> growing up in the Blue Mountains. Oh, dear. I was also going to say that um, Bright Side of the Road and, and like you said, Van Morin, Morrison's, like his, um, his version of Gloria, like they're definitely mm. also uh, parents' party kind of anthems for sure. Oh, totally. Like my... my oh, no, you, no go. you go ahead, you go ahead. Mm-mm. Sorry, I just burped a couple of times. Um... Also, I'm getting over a sickness, so apologies for coughing and being gross. But it was a lot worse when we were going to record. I, I sent a voice note and I was like, do you think this is going to be okay? And I'm just like, no. <laughs> no, I think you should go to bed. Yeah, um, but uh, like, oh, yeah. So I think a lot of my exposure to Van Morrison was definitely my mum cranked Van when she was cleaning and she had a few on rotation. And I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that I've I've mentioned some of these before. Like definitely Priscilla was on high rotation and Kate Sobrano, because <laughs> she's a goddess. Like Priscilla Queen of the Desert. Oh soundtrack. The yeah. soundtrack to the movie. It was a great bloody soundtrack. <laughs> It really was. Bill, it's actually your dog's theme song. Yeah, my dog's theme song. Billy, Bill. don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. No. Um, don't be a fool with your life. He, <laughs> he, he is not a fool with his life. He knows what he wants and he, he takes life by the balls, which is sitting on the couch. Yeah, and also he would never be a hero. No. Like, if I'm upset, he just, like, looks at me. <laughs> With the most disdainful face. No, really? Yeah, he's such a little shit. Whereas Milo will like jump on me, super worried, lick the tears from my cheeks. And I was like, to me. I mean, like, I feel anyway. like Schnickel Fritz will come and be like, all right, you look pretty miserable. I'm going to sit next to you. <laughs> Um, Feels more like a tough love guy. Yeah, he's a t- he's definitely he's go cop bad cop with Milo and Billy. <laughs> we should start a show. <laughs> we should. Milo and Otis, but Milo and Billy. I love it. Uh, okay, uh, no one take that uh, uh, patent pending. Um, <laughs> yeah, baby, please don't go. Also, is just like that song gets me like moving and grooving. 
every time without fail. Yeah. But I yeah. think for me, yeah, like, like, like I do feel a lot of the people that we speak about for me is a nostalgic thing. You know, it takes you back to kind of like a different time. And that time for me is like my parents love Van Morrison. It was played a lot growing up and it's just a fucking fun time. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people also probably... You can't avoid it is what I'm trying to say. No. Like it's there. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's the soundtrack to your bloody life. Yeah, right? absolutely. I um, I remember when that movie... Do you remember that movie As Good As It Gets that was like in the 90s? Yeah, and I, yeah. Diane Keaton and Jack Nicholson. He, We have done him, I cannot recall. I don't think Diane Keaton was in it. It was like Helen Hunt. Oh, it was Helen Hunt. Kinnear. You're right. What is wrong with Greg, my brain? Yeah, Greg Kinnear was so gorgeous in it. Mm. My parents really liked that movie. They weren't even together at the time, but they were both obsessed with it. And there was like a, a Van Morrison song on that soundtrack that my mother is obsessed with and every time it comes on she like closes her eyes. <laughs> One time when she was especially pissed, she was like, I want you to play this at my funeral. <laughs> and I was like, all right, mum. And like the words are like, well, my mama told me there'll be days like this. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and I was like, okay, mum, Jesus Christ, you're never going to die. So it's kind of... Lame thing to talk about. In fact, that's a threat, Lily. You are never <laughs> going to die. Promise me you'll never die. Do you think that uh, Lily is the people's mother like Tito is the people's husband? I do, actually. Just the other day I was talking to some friends and my partner, Ben, who have shit mums. And they were telling, like, shit mum stories. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And they were like... That's okay. And I was like, I feel bad that my mom's so good. And they were like, that's okay because you share. <laughs> it's true. You do. <laughs> I was like, okay, good. Yeah, she's pretty great. She's the goddamn best. Lily. All right. So I'm going to get into the bad stuff. I think we should not delay any further. Don't delay. I've fucked around enough. So I read a lot, I read too much to be honest, and from everything I've read, there's the overwhelming sense here is that he is one cantankerous old bastard. I can he see that. He is grouchy. He is difficult. He's confrontational in every interview, in every anecdote. Um, there was there's this biography um, called No Surrender by this guy called Johnny Rogan um, of Van Morrison, and... Van is painted as a fucking asshole, to be fair. And it's not one of those salacious kind of shitty bios. It's super meticulous, minute detail. I actually enjoyed it quite a lot, but, like, fucking hell, there's so many things. So I'm just going to give you a few of these cute little anecdotes from the book just to, like, understand the kind of man that we're dealing with here. Okay, paint me a picture. Okay, so he hated the press. On, like, so many occasions he would just grunt in response to interview questions. And in one he just said to the guy after he asked him a question, 
Is it okay if I just go to sleep? Okay. Um, at the New York Palladium, he stormed off. Don't know why. Just like stormed off the stage and people wanted tickets refunded. Um, like, and they weren't refunded. <laughs> I think he played two songs. It's pretty bad. That's really um, bad. Spike Milligan said he was a pig after one of Van's uh, band members warned Spike not to sit anywhere near him when he was eating. Um, he compared him to Mr. Cress... How do you say it? Mr. Cresselet? Cressete? From, Who? you know, in Monty Python's The Meaning of Life? Oh, right. That guy. <laughs> um, Apparently Spike thought, oh, it can't be that bad, but apparently it was that bad. Like he was just like a... <laughs> eater. No, I don't like that. He constantly blamed his record label whenever sales weren't good, but at the same time he would like have nothing to do with the business, like no interviews, or as I said, if he did do them, he would just be like fucking rude. So like the press hated him back. Yeah, I mean that's your bread and butter. Don't shit where you eat. Yeah. Uh, He has this house in the seaside village, like somewhere near Dublin, and when a couple of his neighbours took him to court um, because he was trying to widen his driveway, he showed them and he took it all the way to the Supreme Court. What a dickhead. And he was denied in like the village court and then he was denied all the way up to the Supreme Court. I'm sorry, but... That's a fucking joke. Like, the fact that it even got to that point or that it was even allowed to get to that point is in itself an absolute fucking travesty. Like, that's ridiculous. What a fucking waste of taxpayers' money. Fuck off. I know. It's outrageous. Ugh. Um, Oh, and I also have a, a great list of mean things that people said about him in the book. Hit me. And these are people like music business people, management agents, other musos, or like girlfriends, wives, and of course, members of the press. So, offstage, he had very little going for him, and that's the sad thing. I felt he was a fairly morose and depressed of nature. Another one. I thought he was always so wretched back then. We used to find this funny because at 17, you have no insight into psychology or understanding of the sadness of life. I just thought he was pathetic and a really sad man. I love calling someone wretched. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good word. I feel like it's quite Christmassy. It's a Christmassy insult. It is. Festive. It's a festive insult. (laughs) You're wretched, you wretch. (laughs) Um, He didn't want to know anybody. He shunned everyone. He was very rude to me and no one really bothered with him. Uh, Another one that's quite horrible. Uh, He emerged in the 60s when everyone was beautiful and he wasn't. He had nothing that made him beautiful. He didn't even have a beautiful personality. When them came back home, Van was still the wee, fat, ugly man. He had this great chip on his shoulder about his looks. Probably because people said mean things like that, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, these um, are the original mean tweets on Jimmy Kimmel or whatever that is. It Jimmy Kimmel? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think so. Um, this this one's pretty good. 
He was really grumpy. He was one of the grumpiest people I've ever known. Everybody loathed him. He was the most disliked person I can ever remember. (laughs) I can remember everyone saying, what are we naffy is? Who does he think he is? Not only did he have hang-ups, but it was made worse by the fact that he was so disliked by people Mm. and he had no way of communicating at all. Uh, And... The last one I'm going to share here. Van was a mess. A lot of the time he was drinking far too much and was clearly very unhappy. (laughs) Well, who among us? (laughs) Which brings me to his drinking. Um, So he was a big-time alco. Mm -hmm. Um, He said, quote, the heaviest dope I ever did was alcohol. I've done stuff like hash and grass, which isn't really heavy dope. But alcohol is a different story. It's a real heavy drug, a real motherfucker. In Ireland, everybody drinks. Nobody Mm. gives it a second thought. You're Irish, number one, and you're a drinker, number two. Uh, He gave up drinking in 1985. He joined Alcoholics Anonymous. And also, as a sidebar, he dipped his toe into the old Scientology. Oh, no, I thought you were going to say that. No! Um, There was, like, this ex-Scientology dude who said he did, like, what they called an intensive life repair audit um, on him (laughs) at some place in San Francisco. And in the liner notes of his 1983 album, he thanked L. Ron Hubbard, who we all know is the boss of Scientology. And the worst. A criminal. Uh, but Van later denied it by saying, there have been many lies out, put out about me and this finally states my position. I have never joined any organisation nor plan to. Well, okay. there you go. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, back to alcohol. So he quit drinking and at some point he quit AA, just like he quit Scientology and he just stayed sober on his own. And then in 2008, he got this big UK tour happening and he decided to ban booze at these shows. No. And I'm all for people getting sober. Do what you want to do, but don't fucking tell me what to do. What is this, the 2022 World Cup? Get out of here. (laughs) Yeah, Van, you're not my real dad. (laughs) Um, he said it was because he didn't like people in the crowd walking around and distracting him while he was performing. There's lights but, like, in your eyes. Dancing's okay. It's also fine for people to go get a bloody can of lemonade or whatever. But, yeah, this is probably a very silly bad thing, but it made me quite mad and I knew it would bug the shit out of you too. Yeah, you're right. It does bug the shit out of me. <laughs> okay, it's uh, now time to talk about the women in Van's life. Uh-oh. This is historically when we are talking about straight men. It's when the bad behaviour really has a time to shine. Mm. Um, I'm not sure about this though, so let me know what you think. I will. So Van met his first wife, Janet Rigsby, when she was 19 and he was 20. Perfectly acceptable. Mm -hmm. She was an American and the two set up house in New York City. And at some point Van was like about to get deported back to the UK. So they did what any young lovers from different countries would do. They got married. True. It was the very early 60s. They were poor as shit. Uh, they later moved to Woodstock, which is in New York State, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Where Janet, Our geography who, is not very good, but yeah. 
Olivia. We, we don't know. We just pretend we do. We do. Um, Janet, who came to be known as Van's name for her Janet Planet. Uh, weird. <laughs> but, okay. like, that's how she's referred to everywhere. Said that Van was obsessed with living in Woodstock because he wanted to become besties with Bob Dylan, who also lived in Woodstock. Mm-hmm. And she said, quote, every time we'd drive past Dylan's house, Van didn't drive, I did, uh, Van would just stare wistfully out the window at the gravel road leading to Dylan's place. He thought Dylan was the only contemporary worthy of his attention. But back then, Bob just wasn't interested in him. I don't think Bob was interested in anything. No. If you want to know more, we got an episode about him. Find it and listen to it. I actually definitely reference that in my bit coming up. Like I will right. tell you what episode that is. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. It's really such a simple thing that I just can't be bothered doing. It, it's, it's my thing, so it I do is. it every time. <laughs> anyway, it was Janet Planet who was his muse and he wrote so many beautiful songs about her, brown-eyed girls about her, Lovely. ballerina Beside You, Crazy Love, You're My Woman, The Way Young Lovers Do. In 1971, they had a daughter who they called Shana um, and they moved around together a fair bit and they were quite like weird hippies. (laughs) 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 Like, I mean, it was like the 60s and 70s, I guess, but like one time when they were living in Los Angeles... They all get up in the morning and Janet Planet's like, we've got to move. We've got to go today. We've got to go right now. And Van just sort of went along with it. They packed up all their favourite stuff. Their baby got in the car because (laughs) the night before Janet Planet had had a dream that the big one hit and that their house slid down the hill. And that like the day before that, a fortune teller told her that she'd had a vision that astronauts had seen a piece of California break off and fall into the ocean. Not enough reason to move. It's too That's, much. Uh, they moved to, like, Albuquerque. Albuquerque, I've been there. <laughs> it's wild. Uh, okay, anyway, in 1973 they divorced. Um, when Janet Planet left him... In what she says was a desperate gesture of independence. It sounds like it was a quite a codependent relationship. I don't think. Oh, excuse me. I don't think particularly volatile or anything, but just like they were very young and she was pretty cray. Mm. Then there's not much going on. Well, maybe there was. I just couldn't find anything. Um, But in 1992, he met a woman named Michelle Roca, Mm -hmm. who was a former Miss Ireland, very pretty, quite the little socialite. Miss Ireland, like where he's from? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like Miss Australia. Yeah, for a moment I just thought you meant like there was like a, a Miss pageant for all of the islands and I was like, that's heavy competition. Oh, no, Ireland. Got it. The Emerald so, Isle. Oh, the Emerald one, yes, mm. yes. The the one with the leprechauns. And the shabrocks. 
<laughs> so Rochelle Roker, she's going, at the time, she was going through all this really horrible legal stuff after her ex-fiancé had assaulted her. Oh. And Van was, like, super amazing, went with her to all her court hearings. And there, there was, like, a lot of paparazzi and stuff because she was quite famous. Uh-huh. And so it was... It was wild for, like, this guy who had been very reclusive and no one knew anything about to suddenly be like, all right, well, I have to get my picture taken because I have to go to court to support my partner. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Uh, They got engaged. They had two children. Everything was going great. The paparazzi loved them in the 90s. There's lots of pictures of them out on the, the town together. Very much Beauty and the Beast. Story as old as time, the rock star and the model. A small bump in the road happened in 1996 when the Daily Mirror ran a story about Michelle having an affair with a horse racing guy called Angus Gold. The two were at opposite ends of the UK when the story ran. Uh-oh. And they, they tracked down Van for a comment and he said, it's over and that's that, we will not be getting back together. So, like, he, like, straight away was like, oh, it must be true because I read it in the Daily Mirror. Okay. Um, But they also tracked down Michelle um, and they told her that they had, like, evidence that she had spent two nights in a hotel with Angus Gold. And she said, okay, I spent a couple of nights with him. We were in the room together, but we were just talking. We didn't have sex. Nothing happened. I dare you to print the story. I'd love you to because I'd be a rich woman. I'm going to sue you. Um, she said that Angus was a good guy and a good friend. Like, sure. That's weird, right? I don't know. How long? Well, I don't know. Maybe they were friends. But then listen to what this other thing she said to this journalist. <laughs> She started to get really angry and she went, I'm Irish and you're England and let me tell you, the Irish hate the English. I'm going to make sure that someone puts a bomb under your car so you better be very careful. Yeah, that's probably not not a good thing to say. No, she's very cross though. She's Um, quite cross. She's she's a bit tushy. She's tushy. (laughs) Anyway, they worked it out eventually um, and they were still together for many years. Um... Until a very slightly larger bump in the road in 2009, a very odd announcement was posted on Van's website. It read, Gigi and Van Morrison are proud to announce the birth of their firstborn son, little George Ivan Morrison. Born December 28th, 2009, the spitting image of his daddy, he is a dual citizen of Northern Ireland slash UK and the United States. Okay, who is Gigi? I don't know. Uh, A publicist for, well, like Van Morrison's publicist, he puts out a statement that was basically like, it was a computer hack and Van doesn't know anyone by the name Gigi. (laughs) But then he actually did know a Gigi. Gigi was Gigi Lee and she was his tour manager. She was the director of like 14 of his companies. So he knew a Gigi very, very well and like there are a lot of pictures of them together. 
On many occasions, she was this gorgeous Texan woman from Dallas. She was a very close friend of Rosie Hall, who is Jerry Hall's sister, who is married to Mick Jagger, who is a singer for the Rolling Stones, which is a very famous rock band. (laughs) She, She had met Van at a party in London at Ronnie Von Face Woods' house. <laughs> um, Foul. And she had been working for Van Morrison for like four years. Okay. So after this mysterious post, um, then the publicist, and you know, the publicist is saying that Van didn't even know her. A bunch of articles were written and heaps of people from like music journalists to Van's backup singer all were like, Everybody knows Gigi. She's the go-to person for any van-related stuff. Like, what the hell is this publicist talking about? Oh, so then Van's lawyers put out another statement saying that the statement from the publicist was incorrect, but that's all it said. So no confirmation of this beautiful no. baby. But just that it was incorrect. Okay. Um, And then Van put out a statement, all of his very own, that said, for the avoidance of all doubt and in the interests of clarity, I am very happily married to Michelle Morrison with whom I have two wonderful children. That's all he said. Okay. So despite their trying, the press just like could not get to the bottom of who this kid's father was. There was plenty of rumours and so-called sources who provided information to the press. Nothing very solid. I found like all these really old articles that had been like, I don't know if this is what you would say, like microfished onto like the internet. Um, And so wild. Like these people just like telling these wild stories about how they were best friends with her and stuff, but then it turned out to be completely false. Um, But one of the rumours was that they'd set up house together in Northern Ireland, like Van and Gigi and the baby. Uh Um, But the hermit wizard that he is, you know, (laughs) I can neither confirm or deny that this actually happened, but I can tell you that Van and Gigi went to the High Court in Belfast to prevent details about where Gigi lived and details about the baby's physical appearance from being published. I heard he looked exactly like his father. Well, that's what they said. Maybe it's not true. Or maybe it's very true. Maybe he looks anyway, like me. Am I the is, father? <laughs> it's, it's not. And you've got to stop making jokes because this is bad, what I'm going to tell you now. Oh, shit. Sorry, everyone. I didn't know what was coming. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) So horribly, only 13 months after he was born, the baby died. (gasps) He had, he was like hypoglycemic and apparently he was, like what I read, it said he was obese and he slipped into a diabetic coma and died. As a baby. And he was 13 months old. Wow. And then nine months later, Gigi herself passed away in a hospital in Belfast from throat cancer. God, I wish I was dead. I'm sorry, everyone. Oh. It's fine. Listen, she had found out she had cancer just before she found out she was pregnant and she decided to keep the baby 
rather than... Take treatment. Take treatment. It's so sad. That is. Um, And as for Van and Michelle, like court documents show that they didn't legally separate until 2013. Um, And then there's like divorce. They got divorced in 2018. And I guess like none of that's particularly bad. It's really just gossip. <laughs> it's fucking But it's fucking awful and wild and I, uh, we still don't know. And as we should not know, it's not our business. No. Um, so there is some shit though. Um, Van seemed to have started to go like full middle-aged conspiracy theorist bad guy in 2020. Because uh, he was like pissed off about COVID capacity rules at concerts, and we all know that's probably because he wanted to sell more tickets to make more money. Yeah, screw the fact that most of his audience are in, or at least very close to the age where you are in the COVID high risk category due to age. But now he didn't give a fuck about that. He called the COVID measures pseudoscience. Oh. And at the end of 2020, he announced that he was releasing some special songs, an album perhaps, that were all special anti-COVID measure protest songs. One of them is called No More Lockdown. You're like, no one liked it, you fuckwit. No. <laughs> um, QAnon loved this song. Oh, no. There's even a whole thread on 4chan about how great Van Morrison is, which I feel like is definitive proof that he sucks. Absolutely. Right there. Boom. Nailed it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's other songs about fake news and mind control and the names of a few of these songs are Why Are You On Facebook? Mm. The Long Con, Stop Bitching and Do Something and one called They Own The Media, which is like this sort of anti-Semitic trope. And, of course, Western Man, which is, like, super alt-righty. It goes, Western Man has no plan. Since he became complacent, stop believing in himself and let others steal his rewards. While he was dreaming, others were scheming, doing deals behind his back. Now Western Man is adrift and under attack. What happened in between now? There's no... Other bite of the cherry, less he's prepared to fight, start on a new path to freedom. It's all very like people came from overseas and took out jobs. Um, very gross. Can you describe my face? I uh, yucked out. Yeah. Yucked out over it and yucked out at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Nailed it. And anyway, look, that's the end. Uh, In conclusion, (laughs) I would say that Van is a grumpy old bastard, Mm. always has, always will be probably, and, you know, of course a man so full of bitterness would end up a bloody conspiracy theorist. I mean, like, it's basically a fucking cliche, no? Yes. Like, and it's pretty sad considering he also has the capacity to write such beautiful songs. (sighs) Like, it's very weird, like, how someone, like, if you listen to, like, listen to Into the Mystic, how did that guy, (laughs) 
yeah, become that. Well, and then, you know, I think like he was. I mean, I don't know if he was necessarily like a yucky old conspiracy theorist back in the day, um, but he was definitely like always grumpy and grouchy and mean and cross and like generally unbearable to hang around with. Mm. So he was like that when he was writing beautiful songs. Like it's weird. It's weird. It's just disappointing, isn't it? It sounds like he was quite like love. I mean, we don't know if he was loving to his wives, but like it sounds like that they were like, like he was very supportive and yeah. God knows what happened there with Gigi and yeah, that's fucking baby horrible. George, but bit of a mystery man. Definitely. Shall we take a break? Please. I'm sorry, sucks. It is us like. It is us like. I'm sorry, sucks. And we're back. And we are back, refreshed. Absolutely. We've done away. We've wee. done away. Oh, 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 jinx. Jinxy winksy. Got a little drinky poo. Uh, I, now I'm going to start mine. So listen, I don't normally do this, but given the episode we're doing, I've decided you can call me Al. Oh, that's <laughs> a good one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, our story begins many moons ago on October 13th, 1941, in a little place where more cars are stolen than any other city in the United States. It's Newark, New Jersey. Their state motto is prosperity and liberty. Snore. Uh, so it was... Where Tony Soprano is from too. Exactly. Exactly. It's a famous place. So um, it was here that one little baby, Paul Frederick Simon, arrived on this earth. His parents, Louis and Belle, were Hungarian Jewish immigrants. Paul, Great names. Like Belle and Louis. Mm. Mm. I got some names for you. I want some opinions. We'll get I to mean, that. I mean, Paul? I'm not that fussed on. <laughs> Sweet baby Paul. <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, look at that gorgeous baby. Let's call him Paul. <laughs> Paul. I know a nice Paul, but anyway. Oh, look, I've got nothing wrong with it. It's just when I just think it's so weird when people. What's the one from My Favourite Murder? Oh, I can't remember. It's so funny. But I, I think of it all the time, like Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> baby Kevin. Little baby Kevin. <laughs> baby Nigel. Baby Nigel's baby wild. Warwick. <laughs> <So weird. laughs> All right, so Paul loved playing a bit of baseball. And another fun fact, the first baseball game ever was played in New Jersey. Oh. Uh, and uh, when Paul was at the tender age of 11, I personally peaked at 11, uh, he met a boy who would become his ride or die, Mr Art Garfunkel. Good one. The first time they performed together was in the school production of Alice in Wonderland. Oh, cute. Very cute. They loved the Everly Brothers. Obviously, they gagged over these two-part harmonies. They were very good at them. Couldn't get enough. Um, I didn't know they were childhood friends. It's so cute. Yeah, when they were so little. Eleven. Um, 
So when the pair were around 13, they penned their first song titled The Girl For Me. And the very paper they wrote it on now resides in the Library of Congress. Cool. Mm. Uh, Their first recording was with Big Records, hilarious name for a record label. Especially because they're so little. I know. (laughs) But it was called Hey School Girl. Ew. Well, they were 16. So they were schoolboys, but uh, that got all the way to 49 on the charts. Look, that's not nothing. No, you go, boys. And that was 1957. And then Paul graduated from high school and went to uni at Queen's College and studied English. He was in a fraternity and eventually went on to complete one semester of law. Oh, at fancy law school. Man. Yeah, he's a fancy man. Um, but you know, he's not about that collegiate lifestyle. Collegiate lifestyle. Sorry, you know that. I know that. Yeah. This teeny tiny bohemian had other plans. Uh, so next, Paul got real prolific. He wrote a shit ton of songs, but really, like just for himself, he wasn't working with art throughout the next little while. Um, and then we're heading into the sixties and. This is when things start to get turned up to 11. This is when Simon and Garfunkel became Simon and Garfunkel. (laughs) Which also, this is funny, many execs were pretty dubious about that name because they thought it sounded like a law law firm, which I think is pretty hilarious. It does, yeah. (laughs) So their first (laughs) LP, Wednesday morning, 3 a.m., did they even stay up till that late? Probably not. But um, that came out on my sister's birthday, October 19th, but in 1964. And it was not in any way a success, unlike my stunning sister. So <laughs> Paul was like, I'm moving to London. He felt like New York like didn't understand him anymore, you know? He was like, no, mm. I'm not into this. It was all about swinging 60s London. Um do I make you horny, baby? <laughs> I had yeah, to. baby, yeah. <laughs> um, he has a fun old time. He met one Kathy Chitty at his first gig, which was in an Essex jaunt called the Railway Inn Folk Club. She was 16, he was 22. Ew. This is the famous Kathy. You know, you know the one, Kathy's song, that's about her. The line oh. in America, Kathy, I'm lost, I said, though I knew she was sleeping. We're all fucking lost, Paul. You're not yeah. special. You're not special. That's that's the same Kathy. Um, so they went to America for a while and then Kathy headed back to the UK. Sound of Silence came out in 1966. It was gaining a lot of traction. That's a good song. Yeah, my, my favourite song on that album is I Am A Rock. I have listen to that a lot during breakups and I know that they mean it with irony, but I don't. <laughs> no, no. I am a rock. She's literally. I'm an island. Minerals. <laughs> so anyways, Kathy was not about the big smoke. She wasn't interested in the fame. It wasn't her jam. Like she just she was a, also a child. Yeah. Yeah, she was a child and she just didn't really want to be involved in that. Um There is a fun Australian connection here. So throughout this time, he worked with Bruce Woodley and generally the national treasures that are or were the Seekers. 
Oh, I thought you were going to say Lane Owen Woodley. <laughs> you know what? those weird comedians? What? Lane Owen Woodley? No. no. Okay. Well, you should look them up because they're fucking funny as shit. Oh, maybe I do. Is it two guys? Yeah, two guys that were weird looking and they drew these like sounds. Yes, I know exactly who you're talking about. They are great. And they are also national treasures. Mm. So I didn't. But no, the Seekers, RIP. Yeah, absolutely. Not even that long ago. No. I can't remember her name. I Judy? She was Judy? Judy the Seeker. <laughs> I think that was like in the like <laughs> Queen Death Week. Oh, yeah, she didn't get a lot of play. No, nah, she definitely was overshadowed by something big. Yeah, props to Queen. So um, I didn't realise that Simon and Garfunkel were only together for five albums. Obviously, Van shits all over that by the sounds of your bit. <laughs> like, they're such a seminal, like, folk band. Like, it's pretty yeah. remarkable that they created that from five albums. Yeah, it is. So there was, like, Sound of Silence in 1966. Then came Delicious, Herbie, Leafy, Spriggy, Coarse, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary and Thyme. <laughs> <laughs> that was in the same year. Um, I mean, I'd prefer dill and parsley <laughs> and basil. I love basil. a sage parsley. Parsley's, no, sorry, a sage butter, I was going to say, but parsley is my uh, favourite yeah. herb. A parsley is so versatile. It's the best. It's what I get every time. Yeah. I struggle using up the rest of them. Really? Yeah. But you mm. sent me that thing about freezing them, which is very helpful. Yes, yes, thank you. Sorry, um... Then came Bookends in 1968. That's also one of my funeral songs. And finally there was the one, the only, the best-selling album of all time in 1970 at least, Bridge Over Troubled Water. Ah, oh, banger. Absolute fucking banger. It's um, a misery banger. I love it. It's great. Um, in 1969, Paul married Penny Harper and they had a wee baby angel in 1972 called Harper Simon. I like the Cute name. name. Yeah. I love Harper. Love it. I think it's a nice way to kind of acknowledge both of their lineage, right? Because her last name's Harper. Oh, yeah, that yeah. is nice. But also Harper is like such a fucking bullshit celebrity kid name now. Oh, yeah, it is. And maybe like, but, you know, Penny and Paul were the OG. I I reckon. Or maybe Harper Lee was the OG, eh? Harper Lee's mum did it first. Yeah. But there's like, I mean, do you know Eddie... <laughs> Can't find a better day and Eddie Vedder's kid's name is Harper. Oh, of course. Yeah. Shout out to Dan. Shout out, Dan. He, he absolutely loves Pearl Dan. He's a, a diehard fan and he definitely <laughs> probably doesn't listen to our podcast. Nah, he wouldn't. He's, he's pretty busy. Yeah, whatever. Keeping the trash off. Fuck you. I spoke to him today and I was like, thanks for keeping the trash off the street. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought that was so insensitive. We're not going to say what he does. Anyway. No, we're not. Uh, in 1970, Paul and Art were having a tough time. They, were, they, they fucking hated each other, frankly, and it wasn't working and they had to break up. And it's all very sad because after that they barely spoke to one another for like such a long time mm -hmm. after such a beautiful, long and fruitful friendship. Mm. And that is sad, but, you know, people That's change. super sad. Uh, it they change a lot and it's also super hard, I can imagine, I don't know, <laughs> like growing up with someone and then like 
working with that person. Yeah. Living with them on tour. Mm. Ugh. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And those I mean, little... me and Cara, we know. <laughs> nah, we yeah, love each other. Whatever. Uh, in nineteen seventy two, Paul released his first solo album, eponymously named Narcissistic. Um, that was like ASMR. Um, that was too quiet. <laughs> Uh, this is when he starts delving into cultures not his own in his musical journey. And then in 1973 came There Goes Rhyme and Simon. And I'm into that title. Yeah, that's fun. It's really fun. Uh, there was a live album to follow because what better way to celebrate a popular tour than to sear it into people's minds with an album. Yep, yep, yep. Then came Still Crazy After All These Years. In October 1975. Can I tell you, uh, someone I work with, um, her... I hate that name. I know, me too. But her child was, uh, sorry, I just thought about this, but her child was um, ill recently and and her mum, who I work with, was just, you know, she was just like fucking going through a lot and she was exhausted. And so I, I bought her some, like, a cake and then I bought her daughter, like, this fun, fun, silly putty and then... <laughs> And then my friend Amy gave it to her child. And then her child, who's probably like three, she was like, Kara must be such a joker if she thinks this stuff is fun. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I am a joker, April. Thank you. That is cool. So cute. She must be a real joker, like to come out of a three-year-old's mouth. (laughs) Adorable. So cute. Um, Anyway, so this album... Still crazy after all these years. <laughs> this album... A real di- joker, that Paul Simon. <laughs> He's a real joker. So that diverged from his previous work. It was like a bit more depresso espresso as he was kind of finalising his sad divorce with Peggy. Oh, The right. album also features one of my personal favourites, maybe a little bit apt for the moment, uh, 50 Ways to Lose Your Lover, which I oh, fucking love. fuck. I love that song so much. It's so good. It's so good. Um, he was in Annie Hall alongside Nald Scrotum, Woody oh, Allen, season one, episode that's seven. Right. I totally God, forgot I about that. that movie. I love that movie. I miss it. I'll yeah. never ever see it again. I know it sucks. Eh? Lucky I watched it so many times. Mm. You got your fill before it was too late. Yeah. Um, then in 1980, One Trick Pony was released and Slip Slide and Away was, that's oh, another favourite of mine that came out a bit a bit earlier or like on that. I don't know who fucking cares, but I love that song. Yeah. In 1983, Hearts and Bones came out. It's emotional. And the title track is about his relationship with Carrie Fisher. And now yeah. I have to admit I had no fucking clue that Paul Simon and Carrie Fisher were ever an item. Like, did you know Carrie that? Carrie Fisher. Carrie. 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 Am I saying, not Carrie? Okay, Carrie. no, okay. Carrie. All right, I'm sorry. I don't care about <laughs> Princess Leia, so sue me. Okay, Carrie. Look, sorry. Do, did you know they were together? Yeah, vaguely. Yeah, I had no clue that Carrie Fisher was with Paul <laughs> Simon. But in her memoir, Wishful Drinking, she wrote, yeah. if you can get Paul Simon to write a song about you, do it, because he is so brilliant at it. Oh, pe- she, I was really obsessed with her. She's 
hilarious and a brilliant writer. She's a, she was such a fascinating character. Like yeah, just, I love her so much. Also, if you think about her mom, like Debbie Debbie Reynolds, right? Yeah. And then like, have you seen? Hmm? Have you seen or read postcards from the edge? No, but I'm very well aware of it. But I haven't. I've never. Oh, you've got to watch that movie. It is so incredibly good. It's like um, my all-time fucking fave, Shirley MacLaine, mm. plays Debbie Reynolds and Meryl Streep plays like the Carrie Fisher character. It's so good. I think like, I don't know for sure, but maybe Oliver Stone helped turn it into a screenplay. Maybe he directed it. I don't know. It's so good. I mean, you just basically sullied that for me because God knows I hate that Doors movie. <laughs> oh, wow. I loved it. Come on. Come. I think we fought about this before. Let's not fight about it again. <laughs> Let's not fight. We love each other. We do. But we have differences and that's okay. It's healthy. Sometimes um, Amber's more right. Uh, sometimes Amber will just look past that weird scene that they're trying to reenact Jim Morrison at that photo shoot. Val Kilmer's uh, terrible. Also, let's not even get on to Val Kilmer. God knows we do not see eye to eye there. No, and we're going to do him. Mm. I don't know when, but you're going to ruin him because you'll love it. But, and I'll be like, aw. Also, he's not very well, so I don't feel great about that. <laughs> I prefer it if they're dead. So, apparently the album began with up. Art, Gar- Art Garfunkel, he was, like, involved in it with Hearts and Bones. But then Paul was like, nah, this shit is personal. It's a solo mission that only I can embark upon. Sales-wise, it was a stinker. So Carrie and Paul were married, but they divorced in 1984, but they were together for, like, ages. In fact, they continued dating until 1990. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, That's, and Paul. That is ages. It's really long time. Like, it's a really long time. Uh, it's ages, though. Paul also taught at New York University in like 1970. Like, can you imagine? Like, That's cool. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to uni. What the actual shit? Is that the teenage folk dreamboat Paul Simon teaching me? Like, help is a heart. My friend Anna Westbrook uh, t- taught for New York University. Uh, she has a great book out called Dark Fire Shell Burn and you should all read it because it's cool. There you go. That's uh, my second spruik of the episode. <laughs> You're a spruik city over here. So <laughs> Paul also sung on the one and only We Are The World fundraising classic. And now, <laughs> now is the time where I request that all of our beautiful listeners out there pause this episode and take a moment to Google we are the world, Bob Dylan. It will make mm. your day. It really will. It's beautiful. <laughs> and foreshadowing from your part, if you fancy a more in-depth look at all Bobby D, head on over to season two, episode one. I think you did Elvis and it was great. Yeah, it was a good ep. Very good. Uh, and now we're heading into Paul's big bad South Africa phase, a real renaissance. <sighs> So in 1986, Paulie headed straight for the source, the city of gold, a.k.a. Johannesburg, Old Joburg. He jammed, (laughs) he did some sessions, he felt the vibe, and then he took the vibe right on back to the Big Apple where he recorded with Ladysmith Black Mambazo. Mm. 
And then in August 1986, your favourite album came out, the one we all know and love, Graceland. It is the greatest, the best, the greatest, the best. One of, it's, it's one of those albums like Astral Weeks that is just so cohesive and fucking perfect. I agree. <gasps> and it was, I love it. Everyone agreed because it was hugely, hugely successful. And I have a really fun fact uh, your favourite, You Can Call Me Owl, with the brilliantly exuberant lip-syncing of Chevy Chase in the video <laughs> clip, season four, episode two. Oh, yeah, that was a good one too. That was a good one. Um, the was song was inspired by a situation at a party. I'm, I'm, I'm excited if you don't know this because I want to tell you. So yeah, I don't. It was, the whole song was inspired by this party Paul was attending with his then-wife, Peggy, um, the two were having a lovely conversation with Pierre Boulet, a, a French composer and conductor, and as Pierre was heading out, he said to Paul, sorry, I have to leave, Al, and give my best to Betty. <laughs> <laughs> and Paul and Peggy thought it was fucking hilarious and they continued <laughs> to joke throughout their whole relationship, calling one, one another Al and Betty. That's adorable. I know. I love it. Me too. <laughs> fucking hilarious. Um, uh, we have stuff like that, like in our family of like names that people get called. So I've already said this in the fucking podcast before. Who cares? So Morgan used to be a barista mm. before he was a hip hop superstar. And this old guy used to come in and get coffees from him every day and always called him Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> so we all call in the family, we all call him Gordo. Yeah, fair enough. And then <laughs> uh, Kale is Carl. Yeah. And Sevi is Steve. My husband and, and boyfriend, respectively. Yeah. Um, I get Amanda all the time. Mm -hmm. And Anthony just gets Anthony. Like, no one seems to fuck up Anthony's name, but... When, like that, I just feel like that's funny. Um, on the weekend, to have a fake name. I was very sick, and my car got written off while I was sleeping. And someone came to pick up the hire car, and they were texting me, and they kept they called me Tara, and I was like, "It's Cara." <laughs> and then again the next day, when they failed to pick it up, they messaged me again and said it's Tara, and I was like, "Hannah," which was spelled H A. N-A-A, so I spelt that correctly every time. <laughs> My name is Kara because <laughs> I was yeah, just look. like sick and pissy and I was like, I'm not having it today. People at my work who, like, must have to look up my name by typing Amber into Teams mm. will write me a message that says, Hi, Amanda. Like, I don't know how that happens. It does really, really shit me. And it shouldn't as much as it does, but it kind of annoys me. Take I mean, the time. Just have a quick glance. Yeah, yeah. It's not hard. I don't know. It just seems very rude. I agree. Although um, that said, I always spell my boss's name <laughs> when I'm typing really quickly. His name's Kieran, and I always, like, mix up the I and the E at the front. mm and get it wrong every fucking time I'm rushing and I always... Do you acknowledge it? Bad. I acknowledge it now. Yeah. I know he listens. I am so, so sorry, Kieran. <laughs> Kieran, she's sorry. 
please accept this apology. I love you. I'm sorry. Now I thought I'd share my Graceland anecdote. When I was on my university exchange, I fell in love. I was standing at a bar and a handsome fella made eye contact with me. We both coyly looked away and then we looked back at each other and then he said, I've looked at you too many times now. I have to talk to you. It was quite amusing. Like I found it funny. Yeah. That's a good one. Anyways, it turns out he was playing a gig upstairs with his band and it was not going well. And the very self-assured front man said, I've got this, get off the stage. (laughs) And he (laughs) proceeded to play Graceland, a four minute and 44 second song the entire time. (laughs) My future fella and I were having our whole meet cute, the lead singer, the lead singer was just, he was just playing Graceland. And then upon returning upstairs, he was still playing it. Oh, God. He was completely losing the crowd. It was a total fucking mess. And the moral of the story is always date the bassist. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I like drummers too. Yeah, they're pretty good. Uh, Lead singers, no thank you. Mm-mm, red flag. Red flag. I would prefer to be a lead singer myself and I would hope people would still date me. But I am high maintenance. (laughs) (laughs) Next, he skipped over to South America, Brazil to be precise, to get inspiration and possibly cultural appropriation with the release of Rhythm of the Saints. Paul did some touring. In fact, he held the most highly attended concerts ever throughout this time. And in nine people were gagging. Yeah, they loved him. In 1990, our main man made it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Woo, the crowd goes wild. (laughs) Uh, And then in May of 1992, Paul married Edie Breckel, who is 25 years his junior, and they have three children together. And Edie is, like, famous in her own right as a singer and a songwriter. Mm. Paul did a musical called Cake Man. And Wikipedia, Wikipedia describes... I'm sorry, wait. Did you say Cake Man? Cape. Like, not all heroes oh. wear capes. Cape Man. Okay. Either way, it's pretty weird. Yeah, so I can't be bothered to put that much effort into this. So Wikipedia explains it <laughs> as thus. The musical tells the story of real-life Puerto Rican youth, Salvador Agron, who wore a cape while committing two murders in 1959 New York and went on to become a writer in prison. And your favourite pop star, Jennifer Lopez's ex, (laughs) Mark Antony, depicted Salvador Agron in this production. But apparently it cost dear Paul $11 million and didn't make much of that back. So it was, it was a pretty bad time in that respect, in the respect of it being in any way financially viable. Ooh, I guess that's the problem with, like, financing your own weird idea. Yeah. Like, maybe you should go out and ask other people's opinion and see if they would give you some money to back it. That, like, so on the weekend, I worked Finders Keeper, Keepers Market on Sunday. I was quite sick, but I, I, was, I felt so guilty. And I told Jasmine I would do it on Saturday and Sunday, and I could only do Sunday. Anyway, she has an amazing label called Daisy D, and we were selling these beautiful, beautiful 100% silk scarves with her designs and, like, Christmas ornaments, which I bought, like, four of. And um, this is the third spruik. There it is. Whoop. Um, 
But I was thinking just sort of like in the same vein as like, I don't know, it just that just made me think I'm really grateful for the fact that my friends who are creative, I really fucking love their stuff. Mm. Like imagine if it was shit. Mm. You know, like I fucking love it. And when I'm working, like when I've done friends a favour and like worked at these things, shout out Lou Clark, that's got to be the fifth or the sixth there. But like... Yeah. I am standing at their, like, market stall at a festival or a market or whatever and I'm just like, I don't even understand how people are walking past this. This is so good. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, wait, no, people have bad taste so they don't yeah. get it. You know people, Cara. They're all fools. Absolutely. So, sorry, way off topic. Uh, in 2003, Simon and Garfunkel won the Lifetime Achievement Award from the one and only Racist Grammys, which spurred their reunion and U.S. tour. Oh. Yeah. Look, he released a bunch more albums. This is getting really long. He toured extensively. He did Glastonbury in 2011. He's best buds with Lorne Michaels and he's featured on Saturday Night Live no less than 14 times. He even joined one... (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, he even joined one George Harrison, season one, episode eight, on the show. And uh, Paul owns the copyright to his music, a rarity in the industry. Love yeah. that for you, Queen. Uh, there's so much more that I could say about his bloody life, but I feel like I need to stop. He's he's a philanthrop. Uh, sorry, he's a philanthropist mainly in the way of education, which is very commendable. Yes. Um, now I'll finish this segment with. When I was at work, one time Paul Simon came in, the Paul Simon, and he was with a bunch of bodyguards and he was so teeny tiny and I thought he looks so little because of the, like, big burly men around him. But I looked it up and he's my height, which is 5'2", which is very, very short. Like, I were tiny. Yeah, I know. I need a ladder, like, to get through life. Yeah. Amber, the butter to my bread, tell us why you love him. Okay, so I haven't always been, like, obsessed, but I guess in the past 10 years I have been really obsessed with Graceland. Mm. I just love it. It's so comforting to me. It's beautiful. I can, I'm almost always in the mood to listen to it. That's a really I, amazing thing for an album. Like to be yeah. always in the mood to listen to it is a that's a big feat. Like it cheers me up. I I can always like I can just I can handle it always. Which I can't say for so many mm. bands that I really love, but like you're not always in the mood for Amel and the Sniffers and a lot of the time I am, but yeah, I get you. I am too, but like some like the other day we were gardening and I was like, I went to put on Amel and the Sniffers and I was like, you know what, I don't think this is appropriate. It's <laughs> like a, <laughs> it's a sunny day. Our neighbours are probably in their backyards too and they, they're old ladies. They don't want to listen to this. <laughs> Preach to the but front, you know, to the front. <laughs> but you know what they will like is fucking Graceland. Yeah. You're a community-minded lady. I am, I am, I am. Uh, but, you know, I also love 50 Ways to Live Your Lover. It's so good. It is. Um, Slip out the back, Jack. So good. Make a new plan, um, Stan. 
Me and Julio down by the schoolyard. Hate that song. What? Hate it. It's so joyous. Mm-mm. It's the most joyous song that's ever existed. I love Simon and Garfunkel and I really love Paul Simon, but I fucking hate that song. I don't know why. Wow. Tough crowd. Mm. Wow. I feel like you need to explore that. Something must have happened. <laughs> Let's get a hypnotist around <laughs> find out why you hate such a gorgeous little song. I don't know. It's even in like Wes Anderson movie. Is I'm it? pretty sure. It's in like the Royal Tenenbaums. Oh. I think. Like there's nothing to dislike about that song. Is it just too, is it too happy? Maybe that's it. Anyway, uh, yeah, like I don't think my parents were very big into Paul Simon. But my friend Kate, who is a big supporter of our podcast, um, shout out Kate, I fucking love you. She was really, really, really into Graceland and I'm pretty sure I sort of heard it in her car or something. Not like for the first time or anything, but it got me being like, this is so good. Oh, God, I love it. Um, And I'm quite scared of you ruining it because I think I've always had an idea that maybe he didn't do the right thing by those South African musicians. I might um, surprise you there. Okay, good, because I was worried. I'm, I'm quite worried about that, to be perfectly honest, because there's no way he could have made that record without them. And Yeah. And I think there's a reason why I have not really listened to any of his other albums. Okay. Because it doesn't have those people on it. I think I've actually got a kind of a surprise for my first bit. So should we get into the allegations or do you have yeah, anything else to say, Amber Jones? No, let's do it. All right, so little Paul dated one of your true loves. Oh. The one and only, the original uncoordinated runner, Shelley Duvall. Really? Mm. And he acted like a real douche canoe in that relationship. Oh. So they dated from 1976 to 1979 and they met on the set of Annie Hall. Yep. And I said earlier, like, I I totally forgot he was in that, to be fair. Um, In an article in the Hollywood, Holly, sorry, Hollywood Reporter, Mm -hmm. a beacon of journalistic strength. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I think the Hollywood Reporter's all right. All right. It's no sun, that's for sure. So they stated on New Year's Day 1979, as Duval was about to board, a Concorde jet to London to begin filming The Shining. Simon broke up with her at Ugh. the airport. What a cunt. She cried oh, for the entire journey across. This is still the quote. She cried for the entire journey across the Atlantic. What it turns out would just be a warm up for the emotional marathon that lay ahead. And if you want to hear more about that shit show, listen to season four, episode seven, because goddamn, Shelley had a fucking rough trot via the cruel choices and behaviour of Stanley Kubrick. I would like to hear 
just one day for someone to tell me a nice story about something nice that happened to Shelley. I know. <laughs> like I look at her, I love her so much. Like she is so brilliant in The Shining and quite frankly I think she could have been brilliant without being tortured by Stanley Kubrick. Me too. Shelley um, did not fucking deserve any of that. No. Like why hire an actress if you don't think she can do it mm. without you torturing her? It's just so fucked. I agree. Uh, it makes me, yeah, I just like look at her face now and feel so bad. Oh, and the whole thing with... Mr. Phil, he's not a doctor. He's probably going to uh, come and kill me now. He's probably. henchmen are going to come get me. <laughs> uh, so Shelley, yeah, it's fucking terrible. She did not deserve what she got and it's kind of ruined her. And imagine like, so, yeah, it started incredibly badly before she even got on the fucking plane. Yeah, and then she had to put up with that shit. Oh, Shell, doll. So I think you should message her. Um, I will. So Shelly, just sorry, that is a, a nod to the fact that sometime, sometimes Amber messages people. Who she Like we were, <laughs> I, I've already spoken about this. We were on a train. She was scrolling through Instagram and then there was a positive COVID test picture. It was Jacinda Arden and she was like, I better message her. And then she said... <laughs> Hey, Jacinda, I hope everything's okay. Let me know if you need anything brought over. <laughs> I, I, like, my pelvic floor was challenged in that moment because I laughed so hard. I like doing it. It makes me feel better. It's so funny. And, and I also mentioned this, but Lou used to date or, like, see a guy and um, he used to do that. Like, he was like... Uh, hey, Beyonce, those beanbags you borrowed last weekend, if you could just return them or let me know <laughs> when is a good time to come by. <laughs> Which is so funny. I love it. Okay. I mean, if you look on, like, I feel like Instagram makes people feel like, uh, like unnaturally close totally. to celebrities. And, like, if you look through... One of my favourite things to do is, like, look at a celebrity's Instagram post. There's, like, 2,000 comments on there and I love just having a look at some of them. you got to have a look. And and trying to find, like, which ones <laughs> are from people that they actually know. And sometimes people will write stuff like, oh, you look so great, you shouldn't have even worried about you shouldn't have been worried about it or something, like, quite personal. And you're like, oh, the hell is this person? So you click on them and they're just like some housewife from Illinois who definitely doesn't know Beyonce. In 2000, I think I've also said this on the podcast before, so apologies, but in 2019 when the whole of Australia was on fire, I got drunk and messaged all of the Kardashians. <laughs> I always message them. I love messaging them. I messaged them. I was like, can you please do a post? Here are some links to viable charities. We're on fire. Please. People are dying. And then and, and, oh, wow. and I'm That's laughing quite... about it, but it was fucking horrible. But for whatever reason, on some Friday night when I was off my face, I 
like, came, this is what I can do. It came possessed. And actually, one of them posted about it the next day. I don't think it was me. I think it was probably <laughs> 40,000 billion people being like, hey, yeah. Australia's on fire. But It was probably Celeste Barber or something. Yeah, I think it's me. Anyway, so, <laughs> sorry, we need Look, to... Look, it's fun. They'll never see it. As we know, like when you have like a page Instagram, you don't just have one inbox. Mm-mm. So if I if we ever take too long to write back to you, by the way... Write us again. Like it's just because you've gone into the weird inbox and we just don't see it all. I just like add everyone who messages us into the primary one. So if you message us again, we'll see it, but like... Just so you know. Just so you know, we're not being rude. No. Okay? We fucking love you. We're super famous and we have like two inboxes. <laughs> we are not super famous, but I will tell you that Shelly introduced Paul to his next squeeze and her friend, Carrie Fisher. Oh, shit, that's nasty. Now, this relationship, it maybe doesn't really belong here in the bad bits, but Carrie and Paul had a very interesting relationship. It lasted for 12 years and it Mm. was like a whole lot of breaking up and making up. It was very Sean Paul and Blue Cottrell. If you get that (laughs) gag, you're one of the real ones. (laughs) It seemed like a complete mess from start to finish. Uh, They got together. They broke up shortly after. Then they got back together. They got married And at the wedding, Kerry said, let's just say we've had a stormy romance and the storm's finally over. Unfortunately, she was wrong and they (laughs) broke up 11 months later. (laughs) And Kerry told the Washington Post in 1978, it was a relationship based on a great conversation. It probably should have stayed a conversation. Oh, yeah. So she also so they were like intellectually in love with each other. Yeah, definitely. And she also oh. said that on their honeymoon, she yelled at her newly betrothed. Not only do I not like you, I don't like you personally. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, they laughed about that after like a lot. They had a good <laughs> laugh. It's good to laugh. We love to laugh, Mm. yeah. I'm sorry, he sucks. So uh, they kept dating until 1990, as I mentioned, but then, get this, they went to the Amazon. Not much of it left, actually, but they took ayahuasca and according to Carrie, she had a vision. I've leaned heavily on an article uh, for this sort of section from InStyle magazine and the article was written by Isabel Jones, Uh, It was from 2022, this year, and I quote, the vision was feeling pinned beneath Paul's ever-spinning, ever-controlling brain about the way he, like so many powerful men, knew, oh, sorry, so many powerful men, she, hold on. I'm going to start again. Okay. Feeling pinned beneath Paul's ever-spinning, ever-controlling brain about the way he, like so many powerful men she knew, assumed his expertise and control over every situation. And later she commented on their relationship, I'm not good at relationships, I'm not cooperative enough, I couldn't give him the peace that he needed. Also, it's interesting when you're with another celebrity. The issue of celebrity becomes neutralised and you can get on to your bigger problems. 
we both had very interesting fights. It's all a shame because he and I were very good together in the ways that we were good. But like I said, I don't supply someone with a really peaceful home. Mm. I feel like that, like, not the celebrity bit, obviously, but I definitely feel I can empathise with a lot of that very wholly in my own relationships. Yeah, like I... She spoke to me there. I do provide a peaceful home. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's not always like a good time. It's like quiet depression. Oh, yeah. Classic. Which is probably not that peaceful. No. I I think Carrie Fisher was, was she bipolar? Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, So possibly had bouts of loud depression. Yeah. But... Yeah, what she said, I get it. Like, I'm not cooperative. I feel like that a lot of the time. Anyway, single, ready to mingle. <laughs> if anyone knows anybody. Um, Just kidding. She's not interested. No, I'm She's not. not ready to mingle at all. I don't want to mingle. Ugh. Okay, so. The boyfriend is a cat. Sorry. Oh, yeah, he is. Where is and he? And he's. So handsome. I know. You can't get more handsome than Schnickle Fritz. Um, can I just say, are you going to talk any further about Carrie Fisher right now? I don't think so. Because she has a child mm. who must have been born right after that. Yeah. But their father, their name is Billy Lord. Mm-hmm. And her father is like, I can't remember who, what his name is, but he was like a talent agent or uh-huh. something. Yeah. So I feel like that happens a lot. You like have this like hectic relationship. And then have a baby. And then have a baby with the next guy. Well, yeah, because like, sorry, but the reality is if you want to have a baby, have a baby because you don't really know if that person's going to be a good person. No, you have no idea. No. And unfortunately, our bodies betray us. So Mm. do what you got to do to have the life you want to have. Do it. And also, if you're not sure, probably just don't because you can live a pretty good life without having a baby. You're asking two of the people in the know. (laughs) There's no babies here. Uh-uh. Oh, we have a baby. We have a baby. You have two babies. Um, I have one one very hairy bastard baby. Well, we have a human baby. It's just not our. Oh, we do have, yes. Birth baby. We are godmothers. And that baby. He's the hottest believe. baby you've ever seen. He's so sexy. <laughs> we, okay, shout out AE. Alex is the best baby that ever existed. And we love him to the ends of the earth. And I like to tease his father that the baby has my eyes and I am the father. I'm the daddy <laughs> in this situation. At, uh, at his baby shower before he was even born, I cleared the room with some weird <laughs> joke about sexy children. I don't even remember it. I was super drunk. Should we post a picture of the cake? Yes. Okay. Also, Kara made like the greatest vagina cake you've ever seen in your fucking life. And our friend Soph, who 
was pregnant with said baby was so horrified by it that no, she didn't eat it. Like they couldn't cut it because it, it was a vagina. <laughs> they didn't want to fucking jinx it. And also they just put it in like the fridge, and it just sat there for months. It's horrifying, but it also is a very divisive cake. And I will tell you right now that all of the women at that baby shower laughed, and all of the men recoiled. It's true. They were horrified, but it's like I overheard one read a book. Lo- <laughs> like one lovely lady, this man said, "That is disgusting." And then the woman <laughs> said, "How do you think your children were born?" It is a cake, which is a vagina with a baby's head coming out of it. But we'll post it. We'll post it. It's going to be great. It'll be like heaps of pictures of Paul Simon, and then like <laughs> the vagina. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, it's going to be good. I'm so sorry. I'm being very naughty and... Uh, it's fine. It's fine. going off it's in It's our podcast, baby. I We're going to make it go as long as we fucking like. So yeah. now, let me preface this by saying that I've never been to the continent, the Garden of Eden, Africa. I would love to go, but we live in the butthole of the world and getting to places is really spano. It's true. Um, I have also never been to South Africa specifically and apartheid was definitely not included in the curriculum at school. Mm-mm. It really it only came into my periphery in adulthood and I was speaking to a dear friend, Anna, about this. Shout out Anna the Great and the wonderful Jason. Uh, and she said at the time... The main concern, uh, sorry, I'm going into a whole different sphere of things, but it'll come to be. Um, She said at the time, the main concern and connection with apartheid in Australia was the cricket, which is a fucking classic. But when we think about Australia, especially at a time when we couldn't give a shit and wouldn't acknowledge the incredibly brutal, horrific, dark and shameful history of our own stolen country and the treatment of the traditional owners of this land. Don't throw stones, you cunts. Um, Everyone here was all like fucking on their high horses, not giving any fucks about what was going on in their own backyard. So let me attempt to break down the Paul Simon point of this whole paragraph. (laughs) But first... We're going to do a quick Cara Butcher's history segment. Are you ready? I'm ready. So South Africa has had its fair share of invaders and colonisers. We've got the Portuguese, the Dutch and ding, 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 what we also coming, the British. Oh, they love it. C'est classique. Uh, So there were two Boer Wars, essentially wars between the Dutch and the British, both terribly horrific with, you guessed it, uh, tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths. Uh, Then came the move for independence. Then there was the South Africa, sorry, the South African Party and the National Party. They merged to form the United Party, a fitting name, Uh, but there was trouble in paradise because of fucking World War II. Uh, So Britain, of course, wanted allies and there was some pretty bad blood, to say the least. Then in 1948, the National Party came to power and the move for segregation went into fifth gear. 
And this was entirely birthed from the ongoing insidiousness of colonisation of many moons ago. The population was separated into three groups, each of which had different rights. It's truly fucking disturbing the way in which human beings were treated throughout apartheid. It was horrific based on nothing but the colour of their skin and a god complex by those Mm. implementing the behaviour. Well, classic white people shit. Exactly. And what's nuts, speaking of white people, that I honestly, I wasn't aware of at all before researching this. White people made up less than 20% of the population and it's still the same percentage now. I think it's like 17, which is just like the power. Wow. I know. I never knew that. No, me either. So skip forward to August 1986, Graceland was released. Some of the songs on the album were even recorded in South Africa. But at the time, apartheid was still very much in place and many musicians were very vocal about not touring in South Africa and essentially boycotting the country. In fact, the UN approved a cultural boycott from December 1980. And yes, boycotting is definitely not the answer in many circumstances, but the world was watching and they were fucking pissed. In fact, uh, Resolution 35-206 stated, the United Nations General Assembly requests all states to prevent all cultural, academic, sporting and other exchanges with South Africa. Appeals to writers, artists, musicians and other personalities to boycott South Africa. Urges all academic and cultural institutions to terminate all links with South Africa. It's really weirdly punctuated, Mm. but I read it as it's written. Uh, So this was definitely a time of like burgeoning geopolitical consciousness in more of a sort of pop culture realm. Uh, Loads of artists were singing about change and specifically they were singing about apartheid fucking the fuck off. And, you know, it was a movement, baby. Yeah, it's a scary word. Apartheid? Yeah, like I, I feel like for my childhood I, I didn't really know what it meant but it was scary. Yeah, and it only began to be quashed in 1990 <laughs> and it, um, it took four years to take full effect. I think this is so fucking interesting and challenging to me because Paul is ignoring the Western world and the UN's plan, and of course, he wanted to share the phenomenal music, um, like from a different culture, with a broader audience. Which I get, like that's great, but mm. I don't know. It's like it's a very interesting conundrum. At the time, Paul said, "What gives governments the right to wear the cloak of morality? Their morality comes out of the barrel of a gun." And he has a point. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so... I, I don't mean, I don't know. I, I feel like him supporting South African, black South African musicians mm. isn't doing anything bad by apartheid. No, I just think it's interesting because obviously there was like this world move to just be like, no, fuck that, fuck them until they stop this shit. And then he went ahead and did it and there was a... But- Yeah, but, like, fuck the white South Africans until they stop this shit. Yeah, the white racist South Africans were the regime at the time, like, for sure. Mm. But 
I, I don't know. I think it's I, I I do think it's complicated. It's complex. Uh, I've got to learn more about this. I'm I'm disgustingly ignorant. So am I. And like, how did these people even get into power? Twenty percent of I the know. population. I know. I don't. I don't. I mean, like, I'm not even going to pretend that I even am grasping the fucking surface, because, no. like I said, this is nothing that we ever would have learned growing up. No, and I think that's super important. Yeah. Is it being taught now? Probably if not. If you're in high school right now, just let us know, eh? Yeah. I, I want to know. Because <laughs> I honestly went into a, like, I <laughs> I messaged you at one point when I was writing this and I was just like, uh, yeah, so um, I am attempting to do a sort of like, you know, a quick, uh, you know, <laughs> four-minute history about South Africa and apartheid and it's proving <laughs> quite difficult. Um because I never knew anything about this. I had a, you know, a vague understanding of, like, how fucked apartheid was. But I also, I didn't know that people got separated into three different groups. Like, no, I didn't know that. That is so fucking, like, uh, Brave New World or something. It's yeah, fucked. It's very scary. So scary. And so apartheid only began to be quashed in 1990 and it took four years to take full effect. So, you know, it was right. a... Well, I guess you can't just say, okay, now mm. everybody stop. All right, change your speed now. Uh, Paul and Art had a really fucking tumultuous relationship, to say the least. Excuse me. I feel like a bit of an arsehole for continually mentioning Paul's height because I found out in the research that he really struggled with it and and that's really shit. Like we all have our hang-ups about our bodies and it's a big bag of dicks and some things we really hate and mm. there may be some way to kind of alter ourselves or change it in some way and and that might make us feel confident but your height's not really one of them. No, and I think it's definitely like a pretty hectic thing for a man mm. to have a short stature because it's a big joke apparently. Yeah, even on um, a dating app, this someone like on a prompt was like, I'm a 10 but I'm 5'8". <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, but maybe you're a 10. Like, I don't and know. And look, I've definitely even on this very podcast said like weird and mean things about short men. And I apologise. Yeah, I felt bad about it once I was, like, reading it. I was like, mm, that's not very nice of me. Um, anyways, this will make – it'll make sense in a bit while I'm why I'm actually bringing it up. But the first bust-up between Art and Paul was when Sid Poson, a record label guy, offered Paul the opportunity to record two singles, but solo. And Paul was, like, mm. over the moon – and he accepted but forgot to tell his bandmate. Oh. And to Art, this was like a major fucking betrayal and a source of like super deep resentment, which I don't think he ever really got over. I think I can totally understand that. Yeah. Like, yeah, he just I, like left him behind. Uh, uh, it's not even that. It's like, oh, there's that competition mm -hmm. 
as well. Like I was in a band with, and this is not the same, but like I was in a band in my 20s and um, I was this lead singer and the guitar player had definitely a better voice than me. She was definitely a better songwriter than me. She was so good. But she just, um, I just don't think she had the confidence to like sing and play and like be the front person of a band. Mm -hmm. She should have. She was fucking incredible. Um, So most of the songs that we did, she had had written on her own. Anything that we wrote together was pretty silly looking back. but like I, I just had the confidence to do it, mm. and so I sort of made her start a band with me because I loved her so much and her music. Yeah. But like, whenever she sang, <laughs> like even if we were just fucking around, hanging out, and she would sing a song, I would just be like seething with envy and self-hatred and shit like yeah like just the idea that the person who I was making music with might be you know better than me yeah and was that, such a like hectic feeling of oh it was gross and that leads me on to exactly what I was going to say next which is they had like mad beef because of their own personal insecurities. Like Paul felt like Art was the voice and people would think that he wrote the songs and Art felt like Paul held the cards because he was a songwriter. And it's like, dudes, just like talk to each other. It's fine. And they were like real bitchy. And uh, to be fair, Art seemed very bitchy. Like he said much... (laughs) much later about his bandmate not telling him about his solo deal, like this is what he was quoted as saying, I I concluded in an eighth of a second and the friendship was shattered for life. I never forget and I never really forgive. He's a Scorpio for sure. I mean, I'm not sure but it sounds like it. He (laughs) said adding the subtle dig... Paul won the writers' royalties. I got the girls. Oh, because he's tall. Mm. See, that's a mean thing to say. Like, but you know, he was also he was no bloody Adonis. <laughs> no, no. In a smooth FM article by Georgina <laughs> Hamilton, quality journalism. <laughs> it read. In the 2017 biography, Paul Simon, The Life, Simon told author Robert Hellman, I remember during a photo session, Artie said, no matter what happens, I'll always be taller than you. Did that hurt? I guess it hurt enough for me to remember 60 years later. Boys, separate, come on. shit. That's the circle back to me making fun of... (laughs) Paul being the same height as me. Uh, Paul, I, 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 I'm sorry. Apologies yeah, for like, me. I mean, ooh. I guess when all you have is tallness <laughs> and he has talent, you got to take what you can get, mm-hmm. you know. You 
dig it in. Like, fuck. Jealousy is such a horrible thing. It truly is. It fucks with you. Turns you into a horrible monster. So they reunited in 1993 and they did a show with reviews basically saying Mr. Garfunkel turned out to be just one of the large supporting casts for Mr. Simon's collaborators and fellow singers. So basically just like lumping him in. (laughs) After that, Joseph Raskoff, who was Paul's business manager, said, I genuinely believed that if there had been a knife on the table, one of them would have used it. Yikes. That was in a Daily Mail article by Robert Hilburn titled, I was tired of the drama. I couldn't trust Art anymore. He let us all down. Paul Simon on Toxic Truth behind his lifelong feud with Art Garfunkel. That's a hell of a I fucking know, title. I know. It's a fucking... I love those long titles. They but fucking also, gag over those long-ass titles. Despite the fact that I just, like, told a story about, like, that toxic jealousy stuff, I wonder if, like, I think you sort of touched on it before, like, why didn't they just talk to each other? Like, exactly. It, it is toxic masculinity. It's like... Who is who has the bigger dick? Is it the songwriter? Does that make your dick bigger, or is it your tallness? Does that make <laughs> your dick bigger? Like, what is it? Yeah, just have a chat, boys. So say, I've got some bad feelings. Yeah, I think we should sort it out anyway. Let's sort it out. After the hit release of Mrs. Robinson, the two were cast in the 1970 film Catch Twenty Two, directed by Mike Nichols. But then Paul's part got cut and he was pretty saddened by this. And to add insult to injury, Art was offered a part in another film, Carnal Knowledge. And Paul, I know, and Paul was pissed because Art was going to be off on location for like six months. So Paul was like, fuck this, no bueno. But at the same time, let Art live. Let him go do his thing. All he's got is tallness. And so in Paul's biography he wrote, he knew how I'd feel, but he did it anyway. Mike told Artie he was going to be a big movie star and Artie couldn't say no. He later told me he didn't see why it was such a big deal to me. He would make the movie for six months and I could write songs for the next album. Then we could get together and record them. I thought, fuck you. I'm not going to do that. And the truth is, I think if Artie had become a big movie star, he would have left instead of just being the guy who sang Paul (gasps) Simon's songs. He could be our Garfunkel, the big star all by himself. And this made me think about how I could still be the guy who wrote songs and sings them. I didn't need Artie. It's pretty juvenile to me, right? That's pretty juvenile. But also, look, it also (sighs) makes complete sense. Mm. Enough of that. Let's move on to Paul's current relationship. Just so you know, I I can't do this without you. What do you mean? I can't do this podcast without you. (laughs) Even if you're better at it than me. What do you mean? Like, this is never going to be a 
Paul and Art situation. Oh, no. Absolutely not. No, no. I need you. (laughs) No, we're far better than Paul and Art. (laughs) Less success, but just generally better. Uh, So, right, he's married to Edie Breckel. In 2014, something bad happened. Both Edie and Paul were arrested for disorderly conduct charges. They've been married for 30 years and they still are. There's a 25-year age gap, as I mentioned, just letting you know so you can, like, you know, painting, paint a picture or whatever. But um, the children's maternal grandmother is a year younger than their father. <laughs> Ew. Anyways, what happened between the two parents of three? I'll tell you. But before that, okay. oh, the children's names. Oh, please. Adrian, Lulu, Gabriel, any thoughts? I love, love your thoughts on children's names. Okay. Lulu, yes. A mm-hmm. hundred times yes. Yeah. The other two, no. I knew a gross drug dealer called Adrian. Okay. <coughs> he was horrible. Mm-hmm. And I knew a... No, I, you know what, Gabriel, no. The angel from heaven came. Yeah, I don't like that. It's an ugly name to me. Ooh, okay. Let's not alienate all the Gabriels who might listen. Look, I don't, I don't like, I like Gabe, but I wouldn't name my child Gabe. Fair enough. Now, Edie said to the police officers that she slapped Paul in the face because he had done something that, quote, broke her heart and that he was acting like a, quote, spoiled baby calling 911 and he did not care about their children. Okay. And she said Paul couldn't handle being criticised in any manner and became confrontational. Interesting. We don't know what was said. Sounds about right, though. Totally. But she said he shoved her first and then he called 911 after the slap she delivered. He had a a superficial cut to his ear and she had a small bruise to her right wrist. And I believe the neighbours reported the incident because of the yelling. Another Daily Mail article... Wait, what year was this? I'm so sorry. It was 2014. Oh, wow. So they, like, had been together for a long time. Yeah, definitely. Another Daily Mail article, delightfully credited to a Daily Mail reporter, (laughs) uh, said... The report also said Edie hinted at previous physical run-ins but said she refused to elaborate on any such incidents when they quizzed her, the police. Uh, And she became emotional and continued... Oh, no, she became emotional. Hysterical woman. And continued to say that she would never jeopardise their children's well-beings. That's what the report states. And the couple really united throughout the court proceedings and their lawyer, Alan Kramer, glossed over things and said it was a normal husband and wife discussion and Paul didn't want to discuss it and she wanted to discuss it. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's as simple as that. He, he kind of tried to leave and she kind of blocked the door. And look, there's so many problems with this article. It talks about some comment like Edie made about 
whiskey on a talk show, like that she drinks whiskey and it talked about her tumultuous childhood and how much taller she was with him. This whole article is fucked. Fuck off. It's fucking ridiculous. Uh, But at the end of the day, when they turned up to the courthouse, they were hand in hand and it all seemed to be forgiven. Oh. Yeah. It sounds like they were just pissed Mm. and they had a weird fight while they were drunk. I think so. Maybe. I don't know. I also think that what she said I, about I, him not being able to take criticism is very likely. And he, Oh, absolutely. Like, I can I, imagine I, that being an issue. I also would like to say, I don't know this woman. <laughs> and I just heard what you just told me. That's all I know. Edie is not our friend. We're going to say that straight down the line. I mean, she's not my enemy, but, like, I don't know the bitch. Yeah, We're just I mean, talking. We We're just the- talking. We message Jacinda Arden when she needs help. <laughs> but Edie, not familiar. No, I don't know her. Now, I read this very interesting article written by Jordan Runtar for Rolling Stones, and you know how I read that, Amber? How? Be- was it? <gasps> it was because yeah. of our makeup some Patreons. Like, oh, no, 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 no. It was the Patreons. Thanks, Patreons. We love, we love you. you. Thank you. Oh, we just both said the same thing. I know. Oh, my God. We're insane. I think we feel the same. I think we're very thankful for the Patreons, so thank you. I also hope that there isn't, like, a real cunt load of, like, overlapping chatting because, mm. you know, we're on the computer screen thing, which is different to reading cues when you're in person. Anyway, continue. I'm so sorry. It is very different. Uh, but this article investigated the ongoing issue of Paul Simon and cultural Appropriation. Oh, finally. It made the valid point that when Graceland was coming to be, the whole concept of cultural appropriation really didn't exist, which is mm. a fair point. Mm. A quote from musician and activist Jonas Guangua, apologies, stuck with me. So he said, So it has taken another white man to discover my people. That's pretty well said. Pretty succinct, yeah. pretty good. And it's a tale as old as time. We, we being the whiteies, take and take and take and then pretend we're these bastions of innovation. Fuck. We found it. We found Australia. Yeah, you fucking stole it, mate. Yeah. <laughs> it's everything, like music, dance, art, the lot. But having said that, the musicians Paul worked with you were waiting for this, were treated with the utmost respect. They got $200 an hour, which is triple what a top-shelf musician would get in New York at that time. okay. They were flown first class and had the star treatment all the way. Look, let's not get all we love Paul because he collaborated with a lot of different people. People he agreed to give writing credits to, but alas, they were never credited. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Like, how would he know to make those sounds and... Yeah. Yeah. So not just that, he ripped people's chord progressions. So Good Rock and Dopsy or Dopsy and the Twisters and Los Lobos were pretty annoyed by this. Steve Berlin of Los Lobos said, I mean, he quite literally and in no way do I exaggerate when I say he stole 
the song from us. Wow. <laughs> and also said he confronted Paul about it and said, sue me, see what happens. That's what Paul said. <gasps> Yuck. This is one person's, you know. Yeah, but they're like, Los Lobos are like not like some nobody no, band. No, 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 definitely not. Over, like. But sue me, see what happens is so gross. Ew. Steve said that Paul was the world's biggest prick. <laughs> <laughs> Paul denies wrongdoing, though. Uh, another quote from the Rolling Stone article from activist and former Ghanaian ambassador to the UN, James Victor Gebo, said when he goes to South Africa, Paul Sermon bows to apartheid. Says that. He mm. lives in designated hotels for whites. He spends money the way whites have made it possible to spend money there. The money he spends goes to look after white society, not to the township. Mm. Well, yeah, that makes sense. And I think it's a very complicated situation that I don't <sighs> feel like I've come to any kind of resolution with. Paul Simon was even on a, a hit list. So that's pretty oh. real. Really? Yeah, apparently. From, oh, Jesus. Because he ignored that. I don't know who was who, whose hit list he was on, to be honest. I seem to have written this without any kind of information. <laughs> but maybe he was on my hit list along with Ken Doan and Jeff Koons. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um Ken Doan, Jesus. Oh, he's just annoying. Anyway, I think that's enough. This has been a, a zillion hours. It's it's a complicated issue that I've tried to understand but clearly haven't grasped the greatest of my ability. And <laughs> tell me, what do you think? How does this all sit with you, Amber? Look, I think I'm a bit like you. I don't know. I... My, my like, initial... Reaction is to take the good mm. and just run with that and keep listening to Graceland and loving it. Uh-huh. Also to, like, remember that he paid his musicians well. Yeah, I was actually really surprised by that, to be honest. Also, I, like, wonder, I feel like world music, as we like to call it in the white Western world, <clears throat> I feel like it did definitely have, like, a moment and and perhaps, like, found its feet following Graceland. I could be absolutely wrong about that. Um, I don't know definitely. that for a fact, but, it, I mean, like, I would think that too. Like, I feel like, like I that was, was the child. catalyst of bringing it forward. Yeah. Sorry? So, yeah, I, I can't see that that is a bad thing. I I feel certainly that, you know, showcasing black African music is not a bad thing. Um, however, I do like, I, I guess it'll be very hard to ever see past that idea of... Um, a white man found it again. Yeah, you know that totally thing. And you know, I I definitely think it's pretty gross if he collaborated with those musicians on 
songwriting and they didn't get any money for it because... Well, you heard it here first. He's the biggest prick in the world. <laughs> in the world. I know. Um, but look, he, they, that guy should listen to Sorry Sucks. It's, um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. But, yeah, look, uh, uh, I feel weird as I usually do when I'm uncomfortable thinking about race and stuff. So I think... And I think it's okay for us to feel uncomfortable about race. I think we should in a oh, lot no, of circumstances. Yeah, definitely it's good important. for me. Um, I'll listen to Graceland tomorrow and have a think about it, I guess. And I urge you all to do the same. And if you haven't listened to it, have a listen to it now. And I wonder how it sounds if you know any about any of this when you do because, yeah, I, I feel like pretty disgusted with myself that I don't understand apartheid and how that all well, happened. I, I, I don't think that's fair. I don't think you should feel disgusted with yourself. Like, Well, I'm a grown woman in, like, the world with access to information. Yeah. Like, there's no fucking reason why I shouldn't. I think if I was a person of colour, especially a black person, I would probably know about it. Yeah. I mean... Um, but just there's a lot of things that we need to learn about. Yeah. We're just doing the That's, best we can. Look, I'm just saying, next week's job is I'm going to fucking try and figure it out a bit. <laughs> At least in my own mind. Speaking of next week, aka two weeks, hopefully if we get it done, who knows, we are looking at porn. Oh, yeah, we're going to look at porn. Also, I realised, like, when we recorded the first three episodes, we were going to just, like, stick to our weekly format. Yeah, we did. Um, and we realised that in this brave new world, we need more time. We are going to do fortnightly episodes, as you probably know if you've listened to the last three. <laughs> um, so we're going fortnightly. I think that's good. We might even have like a slightly longer break over Christmas just because you guys will probably be busy and we might be busy. Kara's probably already finished her Porn King mm -hmm. episode. Mm -hmm. I haven't even started. Amber! Um, <sighs> I've been busy. Yeah, she's right. She's, there's a lot more in Amber's life than there is in mine. But on the I also side, just started a new. I just started a new medication, and every day at like two o'clock, I need to sleep for like three hours, which is usually my like sorry he sucks time. Mm. Very bad timing. One other thing I'd like to mention that we're going to record soon is. I've got a little bonus for the Patreon. Oh, yeah. If you like cooks, you like chefs, you like lady chefs. <laughs> oh, mate. I got a treat for you. I'm very excited and hopefully we'll get that to you for Christmas, if not for New Year's. And there's one more thing that I wanted to talk live on air, it's not live. You're listening to it on your <laughs> podcast app. Um, we were thinking about making some 
T-shirts, right? What do you think? What do you think? Like, would you be interested in a pre-sale of some T-shirts? Let's, like, I just want to put it out there as, like, a little touchy-feeler. Dip the toe. I mean... I don't even know if you guys have listened to the weird end bit of the episode, but, like, if you're still with us, if you're interested... Do you want to... Just let us know. Like, I don't really know how to go about it. I've got, like, a, an idea. I think we would probably do, like, a PayPal situation, a fucking email or a message on Instagram. This We're not, we're not going to have, like, a website. Yeah, we're not the IT crowd. No, we're, we're not, like, a big... We're arts people. We're just some guys with a laptop and a friend who works at Rode Microphones. Shout out. Megan! Okay, I'm sorry. We're tired. It's late. It's been 7,000 hours. And thanks. Maybe this is going to be our longest ever. I definitely wrote almost three hours on my (laughs) clock here. Uh, thank you very much. Merry Christmas. Happy Festivus. Enjoy a break. Enjoy the harrowing time that is the new year if you can. If you mm. don't, fuck it. Who cares? Just yeah, have a good time. Just, I mean, if your idea of having a good time is having a bad time, do that. Like, it's cool. It's cute. I'm sorry. We have used multiple sources in the research for this podcast. All of these can be found in the show notes. This podcast was written by Kara Nissen and Amber Jones, with music and engineering by Megan Jones. DJ Morks! <laughs> <laughs>